Good morning, everyone. Again, uh, privileged to be with you. Glad each one of you is here. And as Richard mentioned, there is going to be a wonderful meal after this. I wonder if they're going to be serving ice cream. Uh, so what? Excuse me? So um, get kind of a little insight as I was watching the children's story. You know, that whole beautiful container of soy ice cream just got wasted. But... Um, There was an interesting illustration there, wasn't there? I mean, maybe you didn't get the impact because you weren't watching it and you didn't have the saliva going, um, as some of us on the front did. But here was something tasty, delicious, and what happened to it? It got ruined. Why? Because soap was put on it, right? And, of course, that would be the wrong thing to do, to put soap on ice cream, obviously. And as I was watching it, I was thinking, you know, that really goes with my sermon in a certain sense, in that there are beautiful truths in Scripture that get perverted when something wrong is added to them. And we could think about that in lots of different directions, but it really relates to my topic this morning, which was also followed up from last week, the final generation Uh, We started talking about this. And again, it's a beautiful truth, which is very Christ-centered, and yet it gets perverted or it gets misapplied or it becomes, uh, what's the word I want? It becomes repulsive to us, just like ice cream with dish soap on top of it. Um, and actually, as he was doing it, I was thinking, so what's he going to do? Is he going to pour dirt on that thing? But the dish soap was a real good visual, smelled nice, looked really pretty, but certainly is revulsive. And the same thing with Bible truths. It's often the case that there could be a beautiful truth of Scripture, but something's added to it, and then that truth becomes repulsive. So let's see if we can get the beauty out of this truth this morning. Final generation. Last week, we started talking about this. And um, so there is a final generation. This is what we talked about last week, right? There is a final generation. Jesus is going to come. Do you believe that? Yes. Okay, so we're agreed on that. And because Jesus is going to come, that means there will be a final generation. Do we agree on that? Obviously. If he's going to come, there has to be a group of people that are there at the end of time. This final group of people do have a unique work of character change. They're going to go through something called a time of trouble, which um, is unparalleled in Earth's history. But the other main important thing, fourth one on that list, is that Christ's ministry in heaven is at the center. It's what Jesus is doing now in heaven that is of great importance to us. And the last point on that list is the great controversy needs to be wrapped up. Amen? The sin needs to come to an end. Would you agree with that? So those are all true, and those are all beautiful, and we can embrace those as well. But I'd like to continue the topic, and what really got me going on this is a book that someone gave me, and it's called God's Character and the Last Generation. It's published by Pacific Press, and most of the writers writers work at the seminary, and they're all very godly, very dedicated individuals. I don't agree with everything in this book, and this is what got me thinking about this. Um, And two of the concerns of the writers 
are on your screen. First concern is that the writers in this book would question the fact whether the last generation makes any contribution to God's vindication. What do I mean by that? We're in a great battle. We recognize that, yes or no? We call that battle what? The great controversy between good and evil. And it's important that God's character be vindicated. And we'll see how that vindication clearly takes place at the cross. But the question is, is there a role that the last generation plays in that vindication? The authors in this book, the writers in this book would say no. Um, So we'll explore that momentarily. And then the other concern that they have, and I would be concerned about this as well, is that some people might say that we need to have absolute perfection or absolute sinlessness. And um, so I would, I would agree with the writers that if somebody's claiming absolute perfection, that's something we should shy away from. But it raises the question, what is absolute perfection anyway? So these are the two things I want to discuss with you this morning from the scripture and see if we could find out what's the true aspect about this, or at least what the true aspect about this is from my viewpoint, um, and and what is scripture really saying. So I invite you to turn with me to Revelation chapter 12, verses 10 through 12. And this is uh, another hymn in the book of Revelation. As I mentioned last week, there are seven major of these hymn sections. This one's very unique. It's found in chapter 12 which is the chapter in the book of Revelation that really talks about this cosmic conflict, the battle between good and evil, and the war that began in heaven. Revelation 12, verse 7 tells us that. And so as we look at this this passage, I want to keep in mind some questions. First question is, can it be said that the final generation in any way contributes to God's vindication? Can, Can we say that? Or is that something we should stay away from saying? And then, of course, the last question would be, what about the character development of this group of people? So let's look at the song, Revelation chapter 12, in verse 10. And there's several interesting points about it. First of all, it's the only hymn in the book of Revelation that talks about our enemy, the accuser of the brethren, which is Satan. Revelation 12 and verse 10. Then I heard a, what everyone? I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, who's the loud voice? Who's the loud voice? Well, it doesn't say. Who said that? Very good, Teresa. It doesn't say. It doesn't say. And so there's lots of suggestions who this loud voice is. Uh, There are times when a group of people can be said to have spoken with one voice, so possibly this is the court in heaven, the um, living creatures and the 24 elders, whoever they are, it could be them, it's an unidentified loud voice in heaven. But what does it say? Salvation, right? Where are we? Verse 10, salvation, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. This is a kind of a point in the story where this loud voice in heaven, I'm going to suggest it's the united voice of the 24 elders and the four living creatures in their, their role as part of the divine council. They are saying now the salvation, the power, the kingdom, the authority 
of our Christ has come. And that is something that we should say amen to. When God ultimately takes his reign, and we looked last week in Revelation 19, and we saw that at the end of the story in Revelation is when that's actualized, but here's this voice in heaven and they're singing, now is the time, and we are excited. Why? What's the reason given for it? What's the reason for their celebration? For or because the accuser of our brethren, who accuses them before our God day and night, has been thrown down. Who is that accuser of the brethren, by the way? That's Satan. And we can see that just by the few verses before that. In fact, in Revelation chapter 12, there are a a series of successive falls or casting downs that Satan encounters. He's cast down earlier in the chapter, and then he's cast down here, and then later on he's cast down to the earth. There's a series of falls. And if we think back to the history of the story of this battle between good and evil in the scriptures as well, we we know that Satan, the being we call Satan here in Revelation 12, originally had his origins as an unfallen being. And Isaiah chapter 14 and Ezekiel 28 describe this and how he was perfect in his ways from the day he was created until iniquity was found within him. So the first fall is is a fall from his position. He was created and he falls. Now he's a fallen being. He's working to overthrow the government. And then there's a a fall where he is um, unmasked before the heavenly agencies And that's what it's talking about here. His character is being revealed. Satan's character, that is. And he is being revealed. He's being cast down. Question for us is, how is he cast down? What is it that casts Satan down? What is it that causes this fall? Uh, And if we looked in scripture, it's important for us to kind of get a broad view of this. And so let's look back in Revelation a few verses and then let's look into the Gospel of John. What is it that makes Satan defeated? Well, the next verse back in Revelation 12 talks about the blood of the Lamb. So that's an important marker for us. And if we go back to Revelation chapter 5, and I know we've been studying this in Sabbath school, so uh, familiar territory for many of us. Revelation 5 and verse 6 excuse me, Revelation 5 and verse 5, John hears that there is somebody that's victorious, the lion from the tribe of Judah, the root of David. And what has this lion from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, what has he done? He has prevailed. Uh, we could translate that word in most modern, tran- most modern translations, describe that as he has overcome. He is victorious. And then we see verse 6. How does the victorious lion look? What does it say in verse 6? I saw between the throne and the living creatures and the four, 24 elders. What does he see? A lamb as if slain. How is Satan overcome? How is he cast down? How is he defeated? Well, verse 6 tells us he's defeated by the slain lamb. In other words, it is in Jesus' death that Satan is exposed. 
If we think back to the cross, there at the cross, love and selfishness stand face to face, where they come together. Um, Selfishness embodied in Satan and his uh, egging on those that were persecuting Christ, save yourself, save yourself. Love displayed in Christ's willing self-sacrifice. So if we're trying to kind of put this together, one aspect here in Revelation 12 is it's really pointing our attention back to the blood of the Lamb, back to the death of Christ as the place where Satan is unmasked. Let's look at another verse. Let's go to John chapter 12 in verse 31. You could check out those other verses as well later, but John chapter 12 in verse 31 and 32. John 12, 31. This is just before Jesus is about to be crucified. What does he say? Now the judgment is upon this world. Now the ruler of this world will be what? Cast out, thrown down. Same root word in the original. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. So what is it that initiates this casting down of Satan? It's the death of Jesus Christ. When Jesus goes on the cross and he reveals God's character, it's it's like we could think of Jesus' life in three different stages. There's his life as a human being, being victorious over all temptations. Then there's the experience of Gethsemane and Calvary where it comes to a head and he fully manifests who God is and Satan is cast down. Then there's a third phase, which is what he's doing now for us. But in that second phase of his life and his ministry, he reveals who Satan is, and Satan is cast down. So if we think back to the original question that I put up or point is that I brought up on the screen, there's a question about the last generation. If Jesus ultimately is the one that cast down Satan and vindicated God, can there in any way be room for God's people for the last generation also to participate in that? So let's keep that in mind. Let's continue here. Desire of Ages, page 490. This is a beautiful promise, by the way. This is a promise that's unadulterated. It has no um, dish soap on it. It's a beautiful promise. Desire of Ages, page 490. Henceforth, this is from the cross, Christ's followers were to look upon Satan as what? Conquered foe. He is cast down. Upon the cross, Jesus was to gain the victory for them, and that victory he desired them to accept as what? As their own. So here's the point. At the cross, he is defeated. Amen. God is vindicated at the cross through the death of Jesus Christ. There's nothing you and I can do to change that. That victory is secured. But there's a little insight there on that slide that says that victory, God wants us to accept as ours. He wants us to believe that Satan really is a defeated foe. And I think many of us have difficulty with that in our experience. So let's, let's continue. Um, Satan's cast down. What was he called, by the way? Revelation 12.10, he's called the what? A little louder? He's called the accuser of the brethren. And how frequently does he accuse? Day and night, you know. That just means all the time, 
Seven days of every week, 365 days of every year. He is doing what? He is accusing. Now, since the cross, has he stopped his accusations? It's like, okay, I'm defeated, I give up. Not in the least, and we'll see that as we continue the passage. But he's continuing his accusations, but he is defeated. Amen. So when we think of the accuser of the brethren, this comes from um, uh, two particular Hebrew texts, Old Testament texts. The first is the book of Job, Job chapter 1, and, and part of Job chapter 2, and then the book of Zechariah. And both of these passages are very insightful for us. So let's turn back to Job, Job chapter 1. And just to try to get a little summary here, because there's very interesting dynamics that happen in Job chapter 1. The first five verses describe for us how Job is richly blessed. He is a great father, by the way. Uh, He prays for his kids all the time. Now, I don't even know what they're doing, but I'm going to pray for them just in case. And I think all parents pray for their children. I would hope all parents pray for their children that way. Um, Verse 6. It tells us in verse 6 that there's a day when the sons of God, this is part of that divine council. We don't really know who they are in detail, but it's clear. They're coming together before God, and they're presenting themselves, and who, lo and behold, is among them? Satan, apparently not fully cast down yet. He, he's not questioned as to why he's there. It seems like he has every right to be there. He comes in, and the Lord sees him. And the Lord says, well, where are you coming from? Well, going back and forth on the earth. And verse 8, the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? Have you set your heart on my servant Job? For there's none like him on the earth. He's a blameless man. He's upright. He fears God, and he turns away from evil. Now, let's not be deceived. Job was a man just like each one of us. He's a human just like each one of us. He has the same temptations like you and I do. So how is it that he's described as a blameless man who hates evil? Was that something inherent in him? This is the working of God's grace in his heart. He's following God, he loves God, he realizes God is blessing him, and so he's following God. And Satan goes on and says, we can read the passage, yes, but God, God, you are making it easy for Job to do this because you're blessing him so much. And if you take away the blessings, he's going to curse you to your face. And then God says, okay, go ahead, do what you want, just don't kill him. Interesting dynamic here. If you think about it, um, it may want us to give pause for God singling us out for something because of what happens here. Satan then begins to test God, excuse me, test Job. But there's an important point here. As Satan is accusing Job or testing Job, by implication, who is he really testing and accusing? He's testing and accusing God. Yes, God, Job is following you, but only because you're doing all these things for him. And so the test happens, and we're familiar. He loses his family, he gets boils, he's got a terrible life through it, but he does not sin and choose God, charge God foolishly. He remains faithful. Do you think that that in some way contributes to the vindication of God's character? Of course it does. 
It doesn't take away what Jesus did on the cross. That's the big, full, final, glorious, incontrovertible demonstration of who God is. But Job's faithfulness is important. So here's a quotation from a writer who wrote this on the book of Job. She writes, examples of human impropriety are used to impeach God. What does that mean? Satan uses our failings to impeach God. And so while the matter at hand is ostensibly the piety of Job, that's the outward focused, the true challenge is what? Whether God's conception of justice holds up to scrutiny and trial. So while Satan is attacking Job, he ultimately is wanting to attack God. The actions of man thus have direct implications for the questions of God's ultimate justice and propriety. What's it saying? That what Job does impacts the universe's understanding of God's justice. Now, I don't see how you can get around that. It seems pretty clear to me in Scripture that, yes, Jesus is the center, and Job is only able to be faithful because because of the grace of Jesus Christ. A hundred percent. That does not mean Job's example was worth nothing. What if Job had failed the test? What would that have done? That would have given ammunition to who? To the accuser of the brethren. And so when we think of this in terms of Revelation 12, the accuser is cast down, praise the Lord. He's defeated through the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. But there's something else to it in that hymn. So let's go back to Revelation chapter 12. Revelation 12. Again, the question is, can we say that the final generation contributes in some way to the vindication of God? Revelation chapter 12 in verse 10. um, Sorry, quotation here from Signs of the Times. It says, the honor of Christ must stand complete in the perfection of the character of his chosen people. He desires that they, who's they? His people, you and me, shall represent his character to the world. This is really important. Um, If you were to describe Christ's character in one word, how would you describe it? Christ's character in one word? Love. God wants you and me to demonstrate that character to the world. And what's that character? It's love. Now, again, it's a little bit like dish soap on ice cream. If we think, okay, I'm going to be faithful, and that means I'm going to be a hard-nosed, unapproachable, legalistic person, that's not representing God's character. God's character is a character of love. And God wants to demonstrate that to the universe through each one of us. He desires that we shall represent his character to the world. So let's go back. Revelation 12, verse 10. Verse 10 tells us that the accuser of the brethren is cast down. He who accuses them before our God day and night. And by accusing them, he is accusing God. Verse 11. And they did what? They overcame him. That word overcame is used three places in the book of Revelation in the form that it's used. It's used in Revelation 5, 6 talking about Jesus. It's used in Revelation 3.21, talking about Jesus. And it's used here, talking about the followers of Jesus. Just as he overcame, God's people overcome. And by the way, how did he overcome? We think back to Revelation 5.6. How is his overcoming demonstrated? 
through sacrifice. His overcoming is demonstrated through self-sacrificial love, willing to give. This group of people overcome in the same way. Let's look at it in more detail. Um, Overcame him. How? First thing, by the blood of the lamb. They realize that they are entirely dependent on Christ's death and his mediation. That is what gives them the ability to overcome. They are not living as kind of a... uh, Let me rephrase that. You know, sometimes when we think of saints, we have a very warped idea. Um, You can take a walk from Jerusalem down to Jericho, and you can follow the old Jericho road, the same road that Jesus told that parable about the man going down from Jericho. And you can walk down that road from Jerusalem to Jericho. It takes a couple of hours. Really interesting walk. But partway along the way are these caves in the side of the cliff where holy people lived. And they were holy because they separated from everybody. They lived in these little caves. Some of them built walls so nobody could get to them. That's how they demonstrated their holiness. That's not what this is talking about. These people are overcoming because they're showing God's love to the world around them. They're impacting people. They're not pulling back from people. They're interacting with people in order to demonstrate Christ's love through the blood of the Lamb. Um, What's the other aspect they give? The word of their testimony. And then there's that last phrase. They did not love their life even when faced with death. If you notice in your Bible, if you have the King James, it says something like they overcame him by the blood of the lamb or because of the blood of the lamb, depending on your translation, and by the word of their testimony. And then it says, and they did not love their life unto death. What that's really saying is this. They overcame him, one, by the blood of the lamb, two, by the word of the testimony. In other words, they did not love their life unto death. That last phrase is describing their kind of life. They overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by their word of the testimony. In other words, they were willing to die rather than dishonor their savior. This is a picture, I would say, of God's people throughout the ages, but it's also a picture of the last generation as a group. They're going to be a group of people that would rather die than dishonor their savior. They would rather die than commit transgression because of the blood of the lamb. They're focused on what Jesus did at the cross and they share a testimony and their lives are so turned upside down by the love of Christ that they are not going to hurt him. They want to honor him. That is what God wants to do in his people in the last generation. Now, I mentioned in the beginning that some of the authors in the book that I pointed out were concerned about an expression called absolute perfection or absolute sinlessness. And I'm not really even sure what absolute perfection is. I mean, God is absolutely perfect. To think that any human could be absolutely perfect is absurd. We can't be. But being absolutely perfect and having a perfect character are two different things. To be absolutely perfect means to be like God. Nobody's going to be like that, right? That does not mean that God's people are not going to be victorious in their life. That does not mean that they are like this, 
Revelation 12, 10, 12, Revelation 10, 10, excuse me, Revelation 12, 10 through 12, tells us that this group of people are willing to lay down their life rather than transgress. They're willing to be martyrs rather than give up their faith. That is what God wants to have happen among us. Are we there today? Well, I doubt it, kind of. Uh, I speak for myself. You know, willing to lay down my life rather than, yeah. Um, But this is where God wants to bring us to, right? This is the purpose of the gospel, that we become so enamored with Jesus Christ that we are willing to experience this. This is good news, by the way. This is not ice cream with dish soap. This is straight good news that God's going to have a group of people that are so motivated by his love, so focused on him. They don't think that they're so good. It's not like they're strutting on the stage of heaven. Yeah, I've overcome, I've overcome. No, they're totally broken. Lord, I need your grace. I see nothing good in myself. I need your power, but that power really changes their life. That's what the final generation is going to be like. The question is, do you want to be part of it? God wants you to be part of it, and God's doing everything he can to transform lives so that you can be part of it. The question is, will we submit to him? Will we continue to walk with him? Again, they have total dependence on Christ. They realize their own sinfulness. They are not boasting in any way. They're not saying that their nature has changed, but they are being transformed in their character. Um, Here's a quotation. The human agent, that's us. I love this quotation, by the way. The human agent is to go forward to reach the highest standard of what? Perfection of what? Not absolute perfection. That's a heresy, granted. But there is a perfection of character. Now, it's good news that wherever we are in our life, we could be perfect in our maturity and our character. You know, a little three-year-old is not expected to do what a 30-year-old does. And so as we're growing in Christ, we can have the complete comfort and knowledge that we're growing in perfection. But God wants us to reach the highest standard of perfection of character. How do we get it? Grit your teeth? Try harder? Dig in your heels? That's all dish soap, to use that terrible analogy. How do we get it? What does it say? By beholding the character of Jesus Christ. What are you looking at? What are you paying attention to? What's drawing your attention? We become changed. We reach the highest standard of Christian perfection, character perfection, by looking and falling in love with Jesus Christ. That's really good news. Unadulterated gospel. Jesus Christ did something at the cross where he totally unmasked Satan. He is a defeated foe. But God wants us to continue to show that in our lives. And praise the Lord, one day he's going to have a group of people that are united in having that be a reality for themselves. Let's go back to the passage as we draw it to a close. Revelation chapter 12, in verse 12. For this reason, rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has come down to you having great wrath, knowing he has only a short time. So this passage ends 
with a conflicting cry, kind of an antiphonal cry. Rejoice, you in heaven. But those people that are on the earth, whoa. Why? Because the devil's come down to you with great wrath. Why? Because he knows he's already defeated. He knows he's just got a short time, short whatever that means. He knows that he just has a, a short time left. He knows he's defeated, and so he wants to bring as many people with him in the destruction that he can. But praise God, there's going to be a group of people that overcome him by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony, and because they don't count their own life so dear to them that they're willing to exchange it for the pleasures of this world. They are willing to follow Jesus Christ no matter what it means. So we were studying in Sabbath school this morning about the 144,000 and the great multitude. The ultimate question is, what can you do to be part of that group of people? Despite our own weaknesses, you and I need to learn to trust fully in Jesus Christ. And by looking at his sacrifice, allowing it to transform and re-motivate each one of our lives. The question simply is, are you willing? This week, um, I came across something on the internet, sorry. Um, don't try this. By the way, this is in Russia. I don't know what in the world this guy decided to do, but there was this big muck field, and he decided to walk across it. Sounds something like something I would do. But as he was walking across it, he got stuck. Like, he's stuck. He's stuck up to his waist in the mire. And it just reminded me of us in relation to sin. Do you ever feel that? Like when you're caught in sin and you try to get out, and it just pulls you deeper. Anybody have that experience? Like, no? Blessings on you if you never had that experience. I have that experience where it's just you try to get away and it just like sucks you down and down and down. And that's what this guy, thank you, brother. This, this guy's trying to get out and he's really trying to get out and he can't. So they bring a track hoe over to him and they start digging with the bucket. And they dig on both sides of him, like one on each side, to try to pull the muck away that maybe he can slide over to one thing and get out. But as soon as they pull it away, the muck just comes right in. And so then they start like trying to dig close to him, and he tries to dig away, and he is stuck. That's the way we are, stuck in sin. So they just left him there, and he died. No, kidding. Um, <laughs> sorry. Got it. It's the way I would tell the story. Uh, no. So they get the bucket of the track hoe, and they reach behind him, and they scoop the muck and him out. And then that bucket pulls up, and all the muck falls out, and then they lift him up in the bucket, and then they put him on solid ground. And it just reminded me, you know, we are stuck in a mire of sin, and it takes someone else to get us out, and that's Jesus Christ. We cannot get out by ourselves. We are entrapped. And it's not enough to dig on the sides or in front behind. We need to be completely rescued. But I can bet you, when he got out, he did not jump back in. He wanted to remain free. Christ has reached down into the mire of this world. He didn't just send a bucket. He came into this world. He came into the world in which we have to fight temptation and sin, and came into it, and then he walks alongside of us and say, look, I know how to get you out of this mire, and in fact, I will get you out of this mire. 
So whatever the struggle is you're facing today, whatever the battle is, Jesus is able to rescue us from that mire of sin. Are we willing is the question. Do we want to be part of this group of people that will give glory and honor to him throughout ages? It's my prayer that we will. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you uh, for the beautiful truth that if we have faith in you, that faith enables you to transform our heart and life. Thank you for what you've done for us in the person of Jesus Christ. Thank you that Satan is a defeated foe. Father, we pray that he may be defeated in our lives as well. Keep us, Father. Teach us how to keep our eyes upon Jesus. In his name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio, and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.